calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Hi everyone, we'll be starting today's episode with our new segment, Books with Hooks, which we're really excited about. In it, super agents Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary Agency will be reading the query letters and opening pages you submit for their feedback. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to test run your submissions so that when you get them in front of your dream agents, you'll make the best possible first impression. If you'd like to participate, email your query letter and the first five pages of your novel in one document to theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com. Please redact any information you don't want us to share on the podcast, like your name or the title of your work. After the Books with Hook segment, we'll be joined by today's guest, Alexandria Brown, who's the co-owner of indie publisher Rising Action Publishing, as we talk about the pros and cons of the various types of publishing and why you may want to consider an indie publisher. Let's begin with the first query letter. Dear Carly and Cecilia, Title X is an 85,000-word historical YA novel that examines the intergenerational nature of trauma. A marriage of Nightingale and Salt to the Sea, Title X is a book that will appeal to both historical fiction audiences and YA enthusiasts. Clara, 15, is living in a preoccupation Romania in 1940. Lila is 17, living in North America in 2008, and is starting her first year at university. By the time both women turn 20, their lives will be completely upended, leaving marks that will be passed through the generations. Clara and her younger sister Rosie must confront the rising anti-Semitism in their country as it is annexed by Hungary. With the invasion of the Germans in 1944, the two sisters are deported to a concentration camp. The story follows their attempt at survival, the decisions they have to make to live through the war, and the ways they confront their guilt to reclaim their lives afterwards. Impacted by the horrors of her grandmother's life in the mid-20th century, Lila is filled with anxiety that she can't quite understand. Despite feeling a foreboding doom, Lila tries to embrace moving away from her family to attend university, only to become the victim of an assault and bullying. Spiraling into a deep depression, she eventually happens upon letters from her grandmother. Pulling on the strength of her ancestors, she turns to her passion of photography to begin to heal. 
Connected by threads that transcend decades, this is told in alternating chapters from each of Lila, Clara, and finally Rosie's perspectives. The reader follows these young women who are trying to confront trauma, all while learning what it means to find belonging. Based on true events, Title X is more than just a Holocaust story. It is the story of how trauma is passed down through the generations and the healing power of storytelling. As the granddaughter of two Holocaust survivors myself, and as a student enrolled in the Creative Writing Certificate Program at the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Education, I have both the intimate knowledge and the skills to tell the story with grace and heart. This is my first novel. The manuscript is available in part or full upon request. Thank you for your time and consideration. Best, Caroline. All right, let's dive into our first query. Cece, would you like to begin with Caroline's query letter? Sure. Very well-written query letter. Polished, professional, hit all the marks, good comps. I also like the writer's creative writing credentials. If I had to give her one tip on how to make it even stronger, it would be to clarify the importance that a character called Rosie will have in the story. Because the opening paragraph made me feel like it would be like a two main character situation with Clara and Lila. But then the fifth paragraph indicated that there would be like three points of view, Clara, Lila, but then also Clara's sister, Rosie. So I guess, are we talking about three main characters or two? I would like to know that. And maybe I thought to myself, maybe Rosie's perspective is like a bonus chapter. Like she only shows up at the epilogue or something. And, you know, if that's the case, I just want to know. Also, as another very minor note, I'd like to know where in North America this is taking place because she mentions two locations, Romania and North America. And like where in North America? North America is pretty big. Can I just jump in there, Cece, in terms of something that comes up time and again with my creative writing students and writers that I speak to in Canada is as writers we get told don't base something in Toronto or don't base it in Canada because it's so much harder for agents to sell it to American publishers than if it was based in some American city. Is this a thing? Is this not a thing? What is your take on that? I've asked editors about this um, and I feel like Carly will obviously she has much more experience than I do so she'll probably know this more. I feel like it might make a difference to some editors. Yes, I feel like, you know, we see a lot of stories set in New York. I personally feel like we have too many. That being said, U.S. locations would probably be more appealing to U.S. publishers in many instances. But hiding that in your query letter isn't like I'm going to find out once I read it anyway. So um, we could talk about changing that if I love the story. We could talk about the pros and cons. I never think anyone should change anything unless it really makes sense to them, though. I would say that. Okay, Carly, what do you say just about that one point. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I just did a, a Q&A on Instagram uh, yesterday and that question always comes up and it came up again. And so my answer is always that you should, like Cece said, like it has to completely make sense for the story. And so if you are talking about an anonymous North American town, like something like, for example, like a TV reference, Shit's Creek, right? Like that could have been set in any North American rural town, right? And so I think that was the kind of like everyman appeal to a story like that. And so all that mattered was that it was rural, right? And they were kind of kicked out of the city. And so there's things like small town, like romance novels, like again, certain genres where it can be kind of any town in North America. Certain things really matter in terms of if it's a novel where the city really has a, a, a 
character type of feel to it, obviously, right? And so there are certain editors, I agree with Cece, that feel strongly about not knowing anything about Canada. So why would they want to buy a book about Canada if they don't know anything about it? I think it's a bit narrow-minded. Obviously, it's a little bit, um, you know, insular because publishing is so uh, New York City-centric. I think there is a habit to want to set things in New York or make it familiar to editors who might be from, you know, the Northeast or something like that. But I'm hoping, you know, that's a thing of the past, but I do feel like those are biases that are kind of inherently set. So it again, depends on the genre, romance, thriller, crime, anything where, you know, it can be any city. If you do want to give it more universal appeal, the most readers in North America are based in America. So that's something, but if you are Canadian and want to write about Canada, then, you know, you write about Canada. You just do it really well, right? Somebody, I'm thinking of an author, um, Marissa Stapley. She wrote Mating for Life, which was set in Muskoka, but it was sold also to a U.S. publisher, Atria Books. So that book had that kind of like cottage country appeal, which again, can travel and a lot of people can imagine what cottage country looks like. And so we knew it was in Muskoka's and also I think it was a little bit set in Toronto as well. So yeah, so then that one sold in the US. So I'm going to address our, our YA novel historical here, query letter. So for me, I, I have a lot of empathy with somebody trying to write a query that covers multiple characters in multiple time periods. So I, I'm coming to this with a lot of empathy, but I also feel like this is trying to do a lot and in some ways ends up being a bit more vague than specific. And so there's a lot of things that I, I did like. I like that we're talking about Romania. Like, I don't think there is as many um, World War II titles about Romania. So I liked that. But I felt like there are some, some passages that I felt like were just a little bit vague. Things like their lives will be completely upended, leaving marks past through generations. Like, I like that but it's also a little bit vague things like i think i wrote down the decisions they have to make to live through the war and the ways they confront their guilt to reclaim their lives afterwards like i think it's okay to have one type of sentence like that but pretty much every paragraph has a sentence like that and so i just want to know what is the guilt right like i don't know anything about the guilt so tell me about the guilt so i'm just somebody that like wants a little bit more pointed and so to me this query letter read a little bit more like a synopsis than i wanted it to but again i come back to the idea that i am very empathetic with writing a very complicated query letter this is the hardest type of query letter to write and so then we come to the next paragraph we're moving into into the present and i just felt like this was a little bit of a passive paragraph in the sense that Lila tries to embrace moving away from her family to attend university. And so I just didn't feel like things were like she was doing things, things were happening to her. So, you know, a couple things where I just felt like we could just get a little bit more pointed about what the actual plot and what's happening. A line that I really liked, I liked the um, connecting by threads that transcend decades. This is told in alternating chapters from each of Lila, Clara, and finally Rosie's perspective. The reader follows these young women who are trying to confront trauma while all learning what it means to find belonging. Loved that, right? And so I think that's great. But then those other couple vague-ish lines that were trying to do that as well, like I think we cut those. And then I really liked the um, the next line. Based on true events, Title X is more than a Holocaust story. It is the story of how trauma is passed down through the generations and the healing power of storytelling. Beautiful. Loved that. So, so those are the two that I would keep. And then those other more vague lines I would take out. Wonderful. Cece, would you like to dive into the actual five pages? Yes. So I really enjoyed the pages. The writing was really strong. Just basic, like the sentences flowed well. It was, was nice to, to read. It was a joy. Small thing, but I liked that each chapter started with a timestamp. You know, when you're talking about two timelines, that really helps. Like 
2008. I would also suggest adding the character's PO, the character's name. Like if we are in Lila's POV, then add Lila's name. And, and also the place, or maybe even like the neighborhood, like something just to ground us. Very important, I think, in dual timeline novels. It also kind of helps because you avoid having to like mention these things in the middle of the story, which can feel super artificial if not done right. And then as a general note, so we get a little bit of Clara in these first five pages, a little bit of Clara's POV and a little bit of Lila's. I like that because it means that the chapters are short, which I personally like, but I felt that Clara's voice and Lila's voice were too similar. It's really important to make sure that dual POVs read entirely different from each other, especially when told in the first person. So I would have liked them to be a little bit more unique. I also have like specific notes, which by the way, is a great sign. It means that I was invested in the story on how to make each of them better. So with Clara, like right now for for the listener, right now the book begins in Clara's POV. Clara is watching Mrs. Stern, who I assume is a neighbor, wiping clean the word Jew on the side of her home. So right away, this is 1940. We learned that Clara is really perceptive because normally she loves fall. You know, the leaves are turning the colors. It's great. But this year she can tell that something's different because there are signs that things aren't okay. Like the number of Hungarian flags outnumber the number of Romanian flags. People have been giving her weird, disdainful looks. So again, because this is historical fiction, we know that something really bad is about to happen. If it's 1940, World War II started a year ago. So it's about to get much worse for Clara. And that tension is already at the back of our minds because we know the history. My note is this. Stories should begin with tension. Number one thing I look for. It can be conflict. It can be anticipation. It can be expectation. But with historical fiction, it can't be the tension we already know. Like, that's not enough. That can be there too. But add a present-day very specific to the character tension, something small. For example, Clara could be really eager to get to school. This is her first day of school because her crush is waiting for her. Or maybe she's really nervous because her bully will be there or something else. I don't know. But like immerse me in her world and the events of World War II building up should be the backdrop because it's not enough, right? Because I already know the tension of World War II. And by the way, I don't know if I like that she's super perceptive unless it's very important to the character. I don't know that it's great that she's noticing all these changes. I feel like I would want her to be surprised because most people were surprised by how quickly the war escalated. Unless, again, it's super essential that she be perceptive. And then we move to Lila's point of view. It's also her first day of college, not school, but college. And I usually love first day of of college to start a novel because it's a time of change. You get to see all these new people. It's like lots of opportunity for tension. I will say the word tension many times in this podcast, apparently. So, but in Lila's case, the tension seems to be very linked to mental health. I want to say she gets really anxious and nervous when she spends time away from her family. Her family is like, circling the block trying to find a place to park and that makes her nervous like being away from them makes her nervous and she mentions this explicitly a few pages into the novel so i wonder if perhaps we could have that mental and emotional struggle playing in her mind while something else is happening outside something new and different like maybe she could be meeting her roommate um meeting the roommate is a big deal in a first day of college or I don't know, something else, but something to ramp up the tension on the outside, um, not just inside the character's mind. I just want to be feeling more for her. I do want to say though, great writing. I love the dual POV structure. Love the first day of college choice. Love the first day of school choice. Love all of it. Love, love, love. Very good job. Thank you, Cece. Kali? So my take on this is I am a little bit hesitant about why this is YA and I'm just going to kind 
kind of get into that a little bit. So for me, I felt like we're kind of pushing the bounds of YA a little bit. And so that kind of just not like a red flag, but it's kind of like, okay, is this the place, you know, where this belongs? And then also that the other thing that I wasn't too sure about was why is it 2008? Because that we are in, you know, 2021 now. I just wasn't sure if I, I don't know if I missed something or because it says this is based on true events in the query letter that we really like that we were kind of doing a lot of mirroring in a very literal way. But because this is fiction, then I was kind of like, well, you know, we're allowed to play around with things with fiction. So, so that was something that I also didn't quite understand. Again, we only have a few sample pages, so it's hard for me to kind of make these sweeping analyses based on what I have here. So, so yeah, that's, that was kind of my take on, I'm just not convinced this is YA, I guess. Carly, can I just yeah. jump in there? So Clara's oh, yeah. 15 in Romania. So do you still keeping that in mind? Is 15 even pushing the boundaries as well? I would say, I don't think we're pushing the bounds necessarily. I feel like YA audiences can handle more serious subject matter, which, you know, we're going to get into the war and that's totally, that's totally doable. I do feel like the college character, when we start talking about college, I do feel like we are starting to get into kind of like quote unquote new adult territory. And so, so yeah, I mean, for me, this isn't like a make or break situation. It's more just like these, as from an agent's perspective, when I am reading things, these are the kind of things that are going through my head. So, and so my only other note on this was just, again, coming back to the kind of structure of the, the book as a whole. And so we are... We're talking about something extremely serious in the historical section. Um, we are talking about the war, World War II. We, again, because we have so much historical knowledge of this, we know how serious this is. And then when we get to the present day, we are dealing with something like college, which again, as Cece said, is for a modern character is a very serious deal. But I really wasn't feeling like these are equally weighted moments in a character's life because it's impossible <laughs> to explain like what is going on in, a, in you know, a, a 15 year old's head at the start of the war. The only modern comp, I guess, would be COVID or something like that. I don't know. But you know, it's just what what could we possibly say is equal to the weight of a 15 year old in Romania at the cusp of the war. And so I don't know, again, this is a very subjective agent take. But I just don't know that I would ever feel as strongly about the contemporary character as I do about the historical character, which makes me feel like the modern character might just be a bit of a crutch for storytelling to kind of tell us what the historical moment is. But I do love in the query letter how we're talking about generational trauma, the healing power of storytelling. Like these are all beautiful things. So again, I'm making assumptions based on a very limited amount of information. But as it stands, I'm not seeing the weight, the gravity of the situation in the contemporary story. And for me, I love multi-POV stories, like love, love, love. But it has to be equally compelling. The number one reason that editors pass on multi-POV stories is that they don't feel personally invested in both storylines at the same time. So that's the stakes of how important a dual storyline has to be. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. Dear Miss Waters and Miss Lyra, Feather Teresi is a poor excuse for a Sumerian princess. She's too sickly to wield a sword, gets nauseous at the thought of public speaking, and has never attended a council meeting. She certainly can't rule without a strong man by her side. Despite the sickness sweeping her kingdom, all she wants to do is read books and lounge around with her best friend. But when her betrothed is taken by a dragon on their wedding day, the fate of the floundering kingdom is forced into her hands. Caden was the only shape-shifting dragon to survive the Samaean monarchy's brutal raid of the dragon settlements two centuries before. 
He lives for revenge. When he finally has the opportunity to kill the princess and end the Teresi line, he learns the only thing that could stop him. The princess is a dragon. Now he must decide whether to avenge his kind and continue his lonely life of hiding or help a lost princess become a queen. Alina has it all, the family, the status and the boyfriend, until she used unlicensed magic to protect herself from an assault by a powerful man. Forced to flee the kingdom of Kaptar, Alina turned to piracy to survive. But her family has been imprisoned, their execution date fixed, and the price for their release is Alina herself. In a last-ditch attempt to save her family and evade capture, Alina makes a deal with an untrustworthy dragon and a naive princess. Together, Alina, Caden, and Feather must make a strong team, but each has their secrets and their loyalty only goes so far. Sword of Salt, YA Fantasy, 85,000 Words, is a standalone novel with serious potential. It is The Paper Bag Princess meets Fable by Adrienne Young and will appeal to readers who enjoyed All the Stars and Teeth by Adeline Grace. I believe the novel will be of interest to you given your interest in manuscripts with diverse casts and stories with feminist undertones. I am a lawyer and avid reader raising two small bookworms with my husband in Ottawa, Canada. Sword of Salt will be my debut novel. Sincerely, Writer A. So I'm going to critique, um, so the person who sent in this query letter left in their uh, title. So the title is Sword of Salt. And so first, right off the bat, I'm noticing that this query letter was written um, in the format where they tuck all of the kind of pertinent information at the bottom. And I know that some agents really like that, but I personally really like the format, the hook, book, hook format where we have all the pertinent information at the top, we get into the book section in the middle, and then the cook is like the bio about you. So I prefer hook, book, cook. This is written in more of like a book cook kind of situation. So just for me, this isn't my favorite point, like way to um, to write a query. So I just have a lot of questions at the top, right? So if you start with the book, I'm like, well, what is the genre? Who's the character? I don't know. I, I just always start off, I feel like on my heels and like, I want to start off on the ball of my foot here. So right away, I'm thinking, how old is she? You know, I, I just have all these questions, right? And I don't find out to the end that it's a YA fantasy. So so that's just like a structural thing that, that I care about. Again, I know that that certain agents feel really strongly about this. So if if your dream agent wants it this way, you send it that way and, and that's totally fine. Um, again, we know this is a subjective segment um, and that's my take. I also liked that the person had in their kind of hook paragraph, the about the author paragraph, they put where they live because um, this person lives in the city that I live in and I just think that's fun. And so it's, again, not pertinent to the story at all. I just love when I get to know a little bit about them. Sometimes if the person, again, I, I don't live where they live, but I end up offering rep. Sometimes the first thing I'll say is like, hey, I saw that you live in New Orleans. Like I was in New Orleans at a conference in, in 2016 or whatever, you know, I, it's just like a little entry level, uh, or, you know, entry into our conversation. So I like that. So right off the bat, uh, again, this isn't a category that I do a lot of. So I'm kind of coming to this with just kind of general industry knowledge. But right off the bat, I really liked the first paragraph. Damon strode along the beach toward the salt processing plant, avoiding piles of cold ash and charred dragon remains that littered the white sand. You know, to me, I just felt like we got right into the the moment. It was a very like, we're seeing what this world building is look, looking like. But I think we also got right into, by the end of the first page, we have a little drama. There's some salt thieves around, right? And so I think when CC was getting back to in the other query letter pitch was that whether it's historical or fantasy, when you're building a world, we don't want to just build a world. We want to build a world through plot. And with fantasy, we can't just build a world 
world, which is beautiful and wonderful, but we have to kind of know why that matters. Overall, I thought this was really strong, but again, this isn't my my typical genre. So, you know, I give it a thumbs up for that. Wonderful. Cece? I definitely agree with Carly's take. I also prefer just knowing like the what the book is about right off the bat, like the word count, everything. But again, super personal. I just happen to agree. What I really liked about this query letter is that it was voicey. It's hard to make a query letter voicey. And to be clear, it's better that a query letter be polished and professional. It's okay if you can't also make your query letter voicey. But if you are able to, it's a huge plus for me because it's also a joy to read. It's almost like I was reading pages, like an actual novel. So that was fun. I really enjoyed that. Having read the pages though, and I won't get ahead of myself, but my one note about the query letter is that I'm confused about whose point of view we're getting because the query letter makes me think that we're going to get three. But because we've read the pages and we haven't talked about those yet, I know that it's not just three. So I'm confused. Um, In terms of the pages, I like that Damon, the character we we meet, is annoyed at the beginning of the novel. Um, I think annoyance is actually an underutilized technique to get me to connect with your character. We all feel annoyed. I appreciated that. The writer did a really good job of like weaving in Damon's annoyance with the world building because we see that Damon is really just, again, frustrated at the fact that the dragons are extinct because he'd love to be a dragon slayer. He feels like it would give him street cred or something. By the way, I thought that was mean. Dragons are babies, but I'm a weird person. I think of dragons like dogs. I blame Game (laughs) of Thrones. But let me be honest. I don't like Damon. And that's a good thing. I'm all for unlikable characters. I think it's very boring when I like every single character in the story. And then again, Damon's job is like to guard the salt for the crown. He doesn't like his job, which again, just makes him like a ray of sunshine. Again, a good thing in my opinion. And then he comes across a salt thief and lo and behold, he finally gets to fight the dragon and loses and dies. So the character dying right in the beginning, I don't, and again, it's perhaps this is very specific to the genre. I don't, I'm not well read when it comes to fantasy, but Why are we starting with this character's perspective if he's going to die? I would like to start with a different character. Can we start with the character who's a princess and also a dragon? Because that just sounds really cool. Or if we absolutely have to start with Damon, who is a cool character in terms of like being inside his head, and then he has to die. Can't we see that from a different point of view? Like, I just don't want to get invested in this guy for seven pages, not like him in a good way, and then have him die, you know, from his point of view. Like, I don't want that. So, but again, super, super specific. I keep thinking that Faya, um, I feel like the query letter said something like, like Faya is a poor excuse for a princess. And I like that. I thought that was a really cool line. So if Damon is somehow essential to the story and the story needs to begin with him guarding the salt and dying, then maybe somebody else could show that to us. But please take this with a grain of salt. haha, <laughs> Because <laughs> I don't read this genre a lot. I'm still very happy to critique it though, because I sometimes think that an outsider's perspective can be very valuable. Not that you have to follow all the advice that an outsider gives you, but it's just refreshing to be like, oh, okay. So somebody who doesn't read the genre has these opinions. And then maybe you can mine my advice for something useful. At least I hope so. Yeah. And great storytelling is great storytelling, regardless of the, of the genre. So And now for our next submission. Dear Miss Waters and Miss Lyra, Silver Lake is a 90,000 word gothic thriller that explores identity, mental illness and the bond between sisters. It is reminiscent in content and tone of Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn, The Missing Years by Lexi Elliott and Golden Grove by Francine Prose. 
After her twin sister's suicide, 29-year-old Melanie returns to the rural hometown she'd rather forget, a seemingly idyllic place where rolling farmland and quiet cul-de-sacs mask a community of secrets, gossip and ghosts. Mel's relationship with her twin sister Catherine has always been complicated. Diagnosed at a young age with bipolar disorder and psychosis, Kath was frequently at the root of family drama growing up and Mel blames her sister's illness for everything from their parents' divorce to Mel's own inability to commit to a boyfriend or career. Now with Kath gone, Mel is ready to move on with her own life and forget the past. But rather than burying the dead, Mel begins to see her sister everywhere. In her dreams, in the town, in the mirror. As Mel's sense of self starts to blur, she questions her own sanity. Is her sister really haunting her or is she losing her mind? Reunited with her perfectionist mother, aloof father and the gossipy townsfolk, Mel is forced to confront ugly family memories as well as her own repressed guilt for not being able to save her sister. As Mel starts to pick away at Kath's past, she learns how little she knew about the woman whose face she shared and digs up truths she was never meant to discover. Eventually, Mel stumbles upon a tangled web of family secrets that risks sparking her own descent into madness. I have been a professional writer and editor for well over a decade and am a creative writing student in the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies. I have a deep interest in mood disorders with a degree in psychology and a certificate in Gestalt Psychotherapy. Theory. I also have personal experience with many of the themes explored in the novel. My non-fiction work has appeared in various magazines and newspapers, including the Toronto Star, The Globe and Mail, Travel and Escape, Taste and Travel, Afar, Benefits Canada, and more. This is my first novel. Sincerely, Tammy Burns. Okay, so Carly, let's let's hear your take on that. So I want to start off by saying, Cece, I will fight you for this manuscript. I really want it. And Bianca, <laughs> don't let anybody else get it. This one is mine, 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 mine. I wrote that in my notes. I knew you. I'm not even <laughs> kidding. <laughs> That's why I wanted to go first. I'm going to fight you for this one. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I really liked about it was it just ticks all my boxes. I mean, we have um, identity, mental illness, the bond between sisters we have twins um we have up to this kind of rolling farmland quiet cul-de-sacs yeah so right away um my first note on the first paragraph is give it to me and then we get into some material in the query letter talking about you know the, the, the backstory the only um critique that i had for the query letter is i found I, I kind of so the author gets right into kind of the nicknames between the sisters and obviously if you're twins you're gonna call each other by, by kath and mel that's totally fine and i just kind of found even though kath and mel aren't really that similar I was actually mixing up Kath and Mel. So I don't know because these are just kind of like classic names. Again, this could just be me or maybe we got into the nicknames too quickly, but I was kind of mixing them up already. So I would say either really make the names distinct, but also sometimes twins names are kind of similar. So, you know, it, it's true to life, but I found right away I was kind of mixing up Kath and Mel. But other than that, I loved it and I can't wait to read it. Wonderful. Cece? I am going to enlist the help of Damon, the, the guy with the sword, to fight Carly <laughs> for this query. Um, I, I really loved it too. And bonds between sisters are my favorite thing in the world. So yes, um, you know, 
person who wrote this, what's her name? Tammy, Tammy, you, you did a very good job. I, I honestly don't even have any notes on the query letter because all, I, I just kept writing it on the margins. Yes, yes, yes. I was so happy. So. Amazing. Good job, Tammy. Okay, so let's dive into the pages. Carly, would you like to begin with those? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of critiques, so I just kind of want to explain for the readers like how, how wonderful, like the ambiance is really strong. We get right into the characters. And I think that in some ways, you know, the kind of more challenging female character you know, sometimes could put off people. But I think the Gillian Flynn sharp objects comp was really strong because we have a character right away. She's drinking too much. She's puking on the sidewalk kind of thing. So, you know, again, might put off some people, but I like um, challenging female characters. The only thing I had in terms of a note on the first page was, so she's using, again, the book's called Silver Lake. um, And we're talking about this town. She describes it as like a rural hometown. To me, Silver Lake is the neighborhood in LA. So I just had to like mentally get over that it's just a popular neighborhood so that was the first thing I thought of again not a problem just kind of wanted to let you know from my agent's perspective um you know what I was thinking but next page we get right into you know some wonderful character stuff um she likes her house messy her husband likes their house clean you know right away we're kind of just getting into learning a little bit about their marriage learning a little little bit about her but yeah I thought it I thought it was really great and so I think Bianca kind of read off a little bit about the query letter and what the book is about and and I think it really delivers um the sister um passes away and the other one has to kind of go clean up you know and any any issues remaining so as I said loved it checks all my boxes can't wait to read it can I ask a question here before we move on to Cece. So I also loved this, but the one thing that really stood out to me is I wondered if she started at the right place. What I get my students to do is in their first chapter, especially I get them to highlight in bright yellow, everything that is backstory. And in these five opening pages, Four of them are backstory. So we get her in the car vomiting, but then it's back to her marriage or back to the relationship she left. And then it's back to the night she got the phone call in which her sister died. So to have four out of like six pages be backstory in an opening chapter, I don't know. Melanie's our protagonist. Um, She's driving back home. She's puking. Like I said, I like that. I think it's cool that the characters automatically you know, sort of like uh, challenging the preconceived notions of like women behaving. So it felt real. It felt, felt authentic, very emotional. I like all that. I love all the themes. But instead of having her driving alone, you could do one of two things. One, she could be driving with David in the car. Maybe the breakup comes after they arrive in town. That could be something that happens in the story that actually moves the plot forward. If he's in the car with her, that solves the issue of flashbacks. Because I, again, agree, we shouldn't have as many flashbacks. But also, so what I talked about a little bit earlier, we need present day conflict, like outside conflict, and we need internal conflict. So the conflict in her mind, perfect. You don't need to change a thing. But if you also put David right next to her, you don't need a flashback. Like maybe she could be thinking, oh, he's going with me and he said he would go, but I can tell that he's in a bad mood. And, and so you don't need flashbacks to tell us about their relationship. So that's one of the solutions. Another solution I thought is maybe she could stop at a gas station and it's a gas station right outside the town. So I don't know, um, maybe like the person who's there could look at her and go, oh, weren't you one of the so-and-so twins? We don't know her last name. And then maybe he could be asking her like questions, like well-intentioned questions, but that come off as invasive. Like, where are you coming home? It's not Thanksgiving. And then, you know, in her mind, she could be going, I don't want to tell him that my sister just died because I don't want to talk about it because I'm not ready. You know, just having a minor, minor character, like a gas station person, just be there. It helps 
create that juxtaposition and the dichotomy between a character's inner life and outer life. I think it's really important to have something external happening for reasons of tension, but also because we get to see how a character is behaving, whether it's with someone who's close to her or someone like a total stranger, versus how a character is really feeling in her mind. And I don't care how well adjusted you are, that dichotomy is always, always, always there. It could be your best friend. It could be your sister. Um, even if the, the difference is very slight, because that's also very telling. It means you're very close to the person. It means you're very honest about your feelings. But I like that. So I do think that it should begin with her going home because returning home is the perfect moment to start the story. It, it reminds me of that great movie, Now and Then, where the Demi Moore character is driving home and she quotes Tom Wolfe, who says you can never go back home again. And then she think, well, thinks, well, that's great for old Tom, but he didn't have best friends who made her go home. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but going home is a good, good thing. It's We know that it's a place of secret, of gossip, of ghosts. So that's great. But she shouldn't be alone. Alone is bad. Alone is bad. So that's that's my take. Carly, was there anything you wanted to add to that? No, I mean, I feel like Cece did a great job kind of explaining some things that would work. For me, my... Because I love this so much, I was imagining myself reading the whole thing and then going back and figuring out what the opening scene was. So I feel like my style was a little bit different than Cece's. So Tammy, if you're listening to this, I'm still your number one pick. Um, don't listen to Cece. Um, send it to me. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. You see, you're not only learning from these experiences, you, you submit to the segment and you, you might get agents fighting over your work, which is a dream scenario for any writer. This is like the agent shark tank when the idea is really good we fight each other yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. it love it thank you so much cc and carly appreciate your time again thank you bianca and thank you to all the writers who shared their stories with us we're so so happy and honored to read your work thank you and we can't wait to hear what you guys think of this segment too so don't forget to tweet at us or, or tell bianca how it's going and and yeah we, we look forward to more submissions thank you carly waters will be running a 90 minute webinar on identifying and cultivating your author brand on the 11th of March at 8pm Eastern Time. To register for that, head over to Carly's Instagram page where you'll find the link in her bio. Also, don't forget that I've got various creative writing courses coming up. Head to my author page at biancamaray.com to get more information on dates, fees and registration details. Also, CC will be offering one-on-one -on -one meetings and critique services via Manuscript Academy, which is a year-round online writers' conference. You can find more details at manuscriptacademy.com forward slash Cecilia dash Lira. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest has 10 years of experience in marketing and creative writing. She has edited over 30 novels and has worked with authors to help them overcome roadblocks when writing their manuscripts. She has a bachelor's in communications with a major in public relations, a master of fine arts creative writing from the University of Gloucestershire, and is a creative writing PhD candidate currently at the University of Gloucestershire. She has two traditional 
traditionally published nonfiction books. She specializes in contemporary and women's fiction, but has worked with authors in all genres. She co-owns Rising Action Publishing, which is an independent publishing house that specializes in helping authors succeed. It's my pleasure to welcome Alexandria Brown. Alex, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm a longtime fan. Right. So what we're going to be discussing today is indie publishing and where it kind of fits onto the spectrum. So just for the listeners out there, you have your traditional big four publishers, which will soon be big three publishers, things like HarperCollins, Hachette, Penguin Random House, Simon and Schuster. And in a previous episode, we have discussed how Penguin Random House is uh, buying Simon and Schuster and how those will will merge mm-hmm. together. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have self-publishing. But then somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, we have indie publishers, independent publishers. So Alex, can you explain to us what independent publishing is and where indie publishers fit in to the whole publishing industry? Yeah, for sure. Um, So indie publishing, you gave a great overview of self-publishing, the big three, four as of right now, uh, publishers. And so with indie publishing, honestly, in a nutshell, is just any form of publishing that doesn't rely on any of the big publishing houses. So as you know, HarperCollins, Random House, uh, sorry, Penguin Random House, uh, and Simon & Schuster, even before they were bought, all had their own sort of imprints that lie within them. So sometimes you'll see a smaller publishing house and think that it's an indie publisher, but actually it is associated um, with one of the big ones like Hachette as well. So for us, um, indie publishing, we're based out of Toronto. I'm currently in Vancouver, but my business partner, Tina, lives in Toronto. So we've based everything out of Ontario. For us, we just focus on publishing novels that we get really excited about that haven't necessarily been picked up by a big publisher. So we use all of our own capital. We don't have any capital investors. It's it's everything that we generate, we put back into our novels. So that's the independent portion of of our indie publishing house. And there are so many really, really good books that are beautifully written, literary novels or novels across all genres that don't get picked up by big publishing houses. Because when an editor at a big publishing house buys a book, they are buying a book that they know will sell or that they hope is really going to sell well, that it's going to be like a New York Times bestseller. And there's a lot of pressure put on publishers at publishing houses to be putting books out there that are on the New York Times bestseller list. And so you as a writer may write a book that goes out and you get the the loveliest rejections from editors Mm -hmm. who say, you know, it's really beautifully written. It's amazing, but we are just not able to market it in a way that makes it lucrative for sales. And that can be so incredibly frustrating because we tend to think, well, Mm -hmm. the hardest job, is writing a really wonderful book. That should be the hardest bit. And then selling it shouldn't be that difficult, especially if it's an amazing book. 
But because of those marketing issues, it can be really difficult. And this is the great thing about independent publishing houses. They are not editors who are having to go into sales meetings every week and explain how much money they've made for the publishing house, how you know many bestseller lists their authors have hit. And in Canada, especially, you know, if you look at the Giller list or mm. the um, you know, any of the big prize big Canadian prizes, the ones that are often shortlisted, longlisted, or who win are authors that are represented by independent publishing houses. And why do you think that is, Alex? The reason that we see a lot of uh, indie publishing books on those, like the Giller list, like you mentioned, Bianca, is because I think we're able to take risks that the big publishers aren't equipped for right now. Of course, they're looking to feed the machine. And of course, they're looking to continue with their bestsellers. And and that's amazing. And and I love that market. But I think for us, we're just able to take risks on beautifully written books that may not be bestsellers, but they are gorgeous and have a place in the publishing industry just as much as those bestsellers. And, And some of them maybe take longer to hit those lists. But eventually, I think all of the ones on the Giller list will hit bestseller or if they haven't already. And the bestseller list kind of also looks differently now. Of course, we have Amazon bestsellers. We have the New York Times, which will always be a big one here in Canada. We have the Globe and Mail and National Post always put out their own spin on the bestseller list. So I think we're just able to take a bit of a risk on the stories that I think have a place in publishing. So I think it's super important for us to look for those voices to diversify and to continue to promote stories that are underrepresented and have a place in fiction as well as nonfiction. So I know myself and my business partner, Tina, really look for voices that need to be heard right now. And we look for books that maybe will take a different route than bestsellers, but We always want a book that's going to teach somebody something or get them thinking as well as, you know, there's that entertainment value. So I think for us, we're looking for stories that follow that. And I think that's why a lot of indie publishers end up on those lists. They are unique takes on different ideas. And and I think that's probably it for that. So let's talk about the pros and cons of the different kinds of publishing. There are pros and cons to any sort of route that you take in publishing, whether you go self-publishing, indie publishing, or or try to go the traditional route. Of course, my biggest piece of advice before I jump into the pros and cons is that an author really looks for the right home for their novel or their prose or their short story or poems. Because when you find an editor or a lit agent that believes in you, it's an incredible feeling (laughs) on top of that. You're also working with someone who becomes your partner. That's so true. Finding an editor who believes in you makes such a huge difference because it shows an investment in your career and not just an investment in a project that's perhaps going to be very lucrative for them. That's a really important partnership for a writer. Um, You want someone who's going to be supportive and someone who's going to not tear you down, but lift you up. And and there's so many literary agents that do that. And there's so many editors that will do that as well. So 
I just really encourage people to take a look at what they what they have and and who they're pitching it to because ultimately you're not going to be happy to just sign with anyone. You have to sign with that person who sees the vision of your novel and and I think like for myself and and for Rising Action when I signed Maggie Giles there was a connection there between the two of us and like we have banter on Twitter. Um, we meet quite often to go through dev ad edits. I um, like to take a hands-on approach. So I like to meet with people multiple times throughout the dev edit process instead of just being like, okay, change all this and away we go. <laughs> so I think that's also a pro um, for indie publishing is that we are small. So we're very connected to our authors. We're very personal with our authors. We want to make sure that they're just as happy with the finished product that we are. Of course, we have to make some hard decisions sometimes and we don't always agree, but I find that with the open communication style and being like, okay, well, this is what I see. What do you see? It allows us to both grow the book as well as grow our publishing company. So yeah, I really encourage authors to (laughs) look at who they're pitching to and make sure that it's the right fit for them. And yeah, that is a pro for us that we have the time to spend. Even though we're crazy busy, we still love to take that time with that author. Another thing that we would have as a pro is that we invest all of our money back into our books. We ensure that our books are going to be marketed to our best ability, but we also ask that of the writer. We want to make sure that We're both putting in the same effort for marketing because we want to make obviously some money off their book. We also want them to make money off their book. We offer a higher royalty on their book. So it's really a partnership when it comes to that, because obviously the company wants to make money. The author wants to make money. While we don't have those high projected sales, we still want to hit some numbers that are impressive. And we want to try to get our authors on the bestseller list that we can. And there's, again, different ways of doing that. But I think for us, yeah, marketing, the way that we can invest back into our books is that we don't have high overhead costs. We are putting all that money back into our books. For us, though, we try to look for underrepresented authors with stories that are diverse and need to be told stories that may have been rejected in the past, but are now needed because we need to diversify this industry. And I'm very passionate about that. Same with my business partner, Tina, we are looking for those stories. We're looking for those voices and we want to ensure that we are creating a well-rounded publishing industry and doing all that we can to help support those authors. So that is a a pro for us. (laughs) We can take risks on stories that are a little different, but we are really excited about. And yeah, we try to treat our authors like they're partners on a project. So we value their input and they are super involved in the process as much as they want to be. Of course, there are authors who write their book and they want their edits and that's totally cool. Maggie and I have, like I mentioned, uh, a pretty good friendship alongside of our partnership. So we work really well together together. Um, I think people should know that if they ever want to pitch me that they're basically asking me to be their friend. So um, that's really important. And and it's a pro for us, I think, like being able to give that personal touch. On the same hand, like there's always those cons. We don't have the same exposure as the big four, but we do try to make connections online and, and we try to ensure that we're getting our authors in front of their audience. So that's super big for us. 
And, you know, it does always come down to money. While we have small overhead, we don't have the same capital as like a Harper Collins or so sometimes I think indie publishers are looked at as if they aren't first choice. I think as we grow the publishing industry and as the the big four start to buy each other, as we saw with Simon and Schuster. There is a bigger market for indie publishing, but I I think that authors shouldn't look at indie publishing as a second choice because we work the same amount as the big publishers. (laughs) We're just a little different, of course, have nothing but respect for those publishers as well, but we are sometimes seen as a second choice. It is a risk for sure for the author and publishers to go with an indie press And also like as an indie publisher, we take our time with submissions because we need to really ensure that we're investing in authors and books that we believe in. So, you know, it takes a bit of more time and we have a bit more risk when we purchase a book that we want to make sure that we have everything in place before we make an offer. We do expect again to help with marketing, specifically social media. It's so big right now. And and I know Bianca, you know this with the writing community, it's pretty big on on Twitter. So uh, we do expect like authors to have a website and and we'll create one for them, but they do have to maintain it. So you know, that is a, is an extra thing that a lot of writers may not want to do. And that, again, that's totally okay, but marketing is a huge one for us. And, and so it does play into a factor when we sign an author, their willingness to be a part of the marketing. I know there's some obvious ones. A literary agent usually doesn't approach a small publisher, they're commission-based, which makes sense. And, and, if you have a literary agent, they work tirelessly for that commission, so they deserve it. So so looking at an indie press is not top of mind for them, which is okay. And I think like lit agents and, and indie publishers, we respect each other and what each other does. And hopefully our paths cross, um, but uh, it is it is pretty rare that an, a, a lit agent would go with an indie press. Again, not saying that never happens, and I... Love when lit agents approach us. Yeah, for me, I like to be super approachable. So people can DM me on Twitter. I always answer them. DM me on Instagram if you want. Send me an email. I I like to be really open. I have had so many mentors and so many amazing people help me along my journey. And so anytime I can give back to new and upcoming authors and writers, I am accessible. Sometimes I'm answering emails at like 11 o'clock at night. So yeah, reach out to me anytime. I would love to talk to anyone who is looking to break in or uh, if you have a book that you really want to sell, please send me an email. I mean, we are closed for submissions right now until May, but uh, if you have any general questions about submitting to us, or if you need any sort of kind of help, yeah, always send me an email. I might take a day to get back to you, but I always get back to people. Alex, it's been so wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time and for these excellent insights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that I got to talk to you and I'm so glad that I get to be featured on this amazing podcast. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.